I was getting ready to uh, go for old school, like 60s, 70s, 80s. Get, remember the overhead projectors that we used in school? We're ready to pull those up. I was going to get the flatograph out from the old Sunday school plat, uh, classrooms and get that going. And because uh, we've got, uh, it's not the computer that's crashing, it's our program that worked fine the other day and just kept, has been crashing all morning. So we've got no words. No uh, scriptures up there, so uh, if, if you have your Bibles, you've got your, get your, your other Bibles out if you need to. I've had, I've had people say, you should never allow phones in church. I'm like, I think I would lose 95% of the people in the church because that's, that's where they read their Bibles. I read this every morning. Um, I read my Bible on it every morning, so if you want, pull out the version notes, pull out Luke chapter 15. I promise for the next, including today, seven weeks, if you go to Luke 15, you're most likely going to hear the scriptures out of that. We are starting a brand new series today, and it's just called Prodigal. We're going to talk about the parable of the prodigal and dive in for seven total weeks. And I have been so stoked, so stoked about getting into this series. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Dave Berenger. I'm the pastor of K-First, and my wife and I just have the amazing privilege of leading this body. So every once in a while, we do meet some new people, and, we, and I forget to introduce myself as the pastor because I don't usually wear my sandwich board sign around. Um, and then they're like, oh, that guy that just talked to me, he's on the platform. Oh, did not realize that. That's all good. Um, but we just want to get to know you. And if you have questions about anything, uh, feel free to ask. If uh, you're here, maybe maybe you don't have a phone or a, a, a smartphone or a Bible. If you need a Bible, we've got free Bibles, nice Bibles that we hand out. I don't give out Dollar Tree Bibles. Um, I, my first job was at the Dollar Tree. We had Bibles. I would never give those ones out. Uh, we've got really nice ones that if you need one, we've got one at the, the booth inside our lobby. We would love to bless you with it. No strings attached. So Luke 15 is where we're going to live for the coming seven weeks as we dive into this amazing, amazing story. Have you ever lost something valuable? Only these people over here have. That was a quick yes. Um, how about this? I'm not saying that I've done this. Has anybody ever lost their wedding ring before? Thank you. Some truthful people. I got people pointing at their spouses. Yes. Um, something I had the bad habit of doing uh, for a number of years is playing with my wedding ring. And uh, my wife has told me for years, stop playing with the wedding ring, stop playing with it, you're going to lose it. And if you lose it, and the statement was never finished, but you just kind of know and imagine what would happen at the end of that statement. And so one day, I've got, actually I've got a little $6 silicone ring on because of other issues with the ring. Um, but I remember just playing with it in our church van. We were with our staff, we were on our way back from a conference, and I'm playing with it. She's like, don't, don't lose that thing. I'm like, what? It slips out, bounces off my knee, and it falls between the crack of the floorboard and the sliding door of the church van, and we're on a freeway. And she looks at me, I look at her, I'm like, we can't stop. And she goes, that thing better be in that door. And so the entire ride, I'm just sweating and wondering, is the ring still there? The bonus is if it fell out, I get a new ring. But that's the one she gave to me on my wedding day. So how do you replace that? Which is why it's in a jewelry box right now and I've got a $6 ring on my hand. Lost things. Um, there is a famous cellist by the name of Yo-Yo Ma. If you've ever heard him play, it is, it'll bring you to tears. He is an amazing cellist. 
And one day he was finishing up, he had just finished a concert in New York City. He was at Carnegie Hall playing. And when he finished, he got into a cab and he needed to go over to Manhattan to where his, that's where his home was at. So he, before he got into the cab, he put into the back of the cab his cello. Now you gotta understand, this is not an ordinary cello. This cello is over 260 years old. It is worth $2.5 million. So he gets in the cab, directs him toward this address. So he goes over to Manhattan, he pays the cabbie, gets out of the cab, and as he's walking into his home, he begins to realize something. He never got his cello out of the trunk of the cab. And so now there is a cab driver driving around with a, with a cello from the 1700s worth 2.5 million, and he pulls out the receipt finds the cab number, the cab name, begins to make frantic calls, and after a few hours, they track down the cab in Queens, and they retrieve the cello. Some of you are like holding your breath. Did they get the cello back? They get the cello back. There's this idea of lost things that begins to move our hearts toward trying to frantically search and to find that thing that is valuable. If you need to know the heart of Jesus, if you ever wanna know the heart of the Father, the heart of God for you and for me and for this world, look no further than Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, it is the story of lostness. And we know that because if you read the entirety of Luke chapter 15, I have read it in its entirety multiple times over multiple versions of the Bible over multiple weeks. In fact, it's been, I've been planning this series for the past six months. I've read it over and over. You're gonna see the word lost over and over. And in fact, if you've been in this church long enough, you'll, talk, you'll, you'll hear me talk about Bible study and major things within scripture that help you understand things that are important. And when anything is ever repeated three times, that means something is being emphasized, which means when you get to Luke, chapter 15 and you read um, you begin to read about Jesus talking and he begins to share about lost sheep and then he talks about the lost coin then he begins to talk about the lost sons and you begin to think to yourself this word loss is important and if you need to understand Jesus of anything today know this his heart is toward you today and you may not feel lost but you could be lost even and if you do feel lost it doesn't matter that you are a candidate for the grace and the mercy of God because Jesus is not looking to find you in order to punish you he looks to find you in order to redeem you because he loves you that much some of us are running from God because we think God hates us. God's going to punish us. He's going to find out what we did. Let me just tell you, God already knows what you did. And he seeks you out, not to smack you across the head. He seeks you out to embrace you, to transform you, and to restore you. And so we come to Luke 15. And the heart of the parable, I mean, Jesus, we spelled it out in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where he said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Not seeking to punish, not seeking to shun, not seeking to ignore. He seeks to save that which is lost. And so we get to chapter 15. And if you look at verse 11 through 32, this is perhaps arguably the most famous parable of all of the parables. And some of you are saying, well, what about the Good Samaritan? I would argue that the prodigal son is the most famous 
parable out of all parables. Some of you are thinking, what's a parable? A parable is a simple story to explain a morale or a spiritual truth. And Jesus used stories to explain the kingdom. And I think this is the most famous. I think this is so famous that even people who are not Christian, people that are not connected to Christianity, they know about the story of the prodigal son. They will use terms like prodigal, or that person's a prodigal. That it's a term that's utilized. Shakespeare wrote plays about the prodigal son. Rembrandt actually made a famous painting. I was going to show it to you. Um, maybe I'll show it to you another week. But that painting is famous. It was about the prodigal son. This is the quintessential story of Jesus and his heart for you and for me. And so before we read verse 11... You have to understand the parable of the lost son, the parable of the prodigal sons, plural, we'll get to that in a second, doesn't actually start in verse 11. It actually starts at the beginning of the chapter because if you're with me long enough, you'll understand that I will never tell you just to read one scripture. Don't read one verse, read the verses around it. Don't read one section, read the, ch- read the chapter around it. Know the context. And so to really understand what Jesus is talking about and who he's talking to, you need to find out who's in the audience. Because the audience will tell you everything about the parable itself. So go to verse 1. If you have your paper Bibles, it's, or your version Bibles, it doesn't matter to me. It says in verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man deceives, he receives sinners and eats with him. Now look at that. This is the crowd. Jesus has two types of people in the crowd. First of all, if you're taking notes, write down the word, outsiders and the outsiders were people that were outside of the church so to speak outside of the religious grouping and the the ideology the the rules that were set these were the people that lived on the outside and in those days they called them sinners and tax tax collectors now this doesn't mean that tax collectors weren't sinners they were sinners but they had their own category because you had people that were sinners, that were, what is sin? Sin means to miss the mark. These were people that just weren't religious. They weren't really connected to God. And then you had tax collectors. Tax collectors were so bad in the eyes of the Jewish culture that they had their own category. They were worse than sinners. Some of you in your head, you categorize sin and you make some sins worse than the others because we just, we like to categorize people so that we can control them. And tax collectors was a way for people to say they are worse than a sinner. Why was the tax collector so bad in their eyes? Because the tax collectors were a Jewish people that were hired by the empire, which was Rome. And they not only carried out the tax deeds of Rome, but they actually charged their own culture, their own people, more than what was required so they could make more money off of their own people. So this is part of the audience. And they're not just part of the audience. This is what's going on. Jesus was sitting with them. He was sitting just eating, relaxing, talking, having conversation. And then the second group comes in, which is verse two. The Pharisees and the scribes, or some of your translations will say the Pharisees and the teachers. These were, these were what we might call insiders. They were insiders with the God thing, insiders with religion, insiders with the rule. And they knew about God, but the reality is I don't think they truly knew God. They had an inside scoop on what they felt God required and they looked at Jesus and they began to scoff at him and they began to to cut him apart. I mean, look at the two different groups, sinners and tax collectors. And then you've got, which are the outsiders, then you've got the insiders. You've got the Pharisees. 
They were, we'll say it this way, I'll pick on myself. They were the pastors of that day, the leadership of the church. And yet Jesus begins to tell them a story. And he begins to lay out this beautiful story. Look at this, verse 12, read this with me, excuse me, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me a share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country and he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, there's something that I want you to note and something to realize is Jesus never uses the word prodigal. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus never calls the younger son a prodigal. Not once. In fact, what does the scripture say? There was a man who had how many sons? Two sons. So instead of talking about the two sons, we just harp on the one, don't we? We just pick, poor, the, I, I wanna meet this guy in heaven. I just, if, if this was a literal story, Jesus would tell about an actual situation and, and, and not um, illusion or metaphor. I wanna actually meet this guy. I think he just has a load, like a billion apologies coming his way. We've been picking on him for years. Because we assumed that he was just full of sin, he was broken, he was lost, and the reality is, we are taking not Jesus' words or Jesus' descriptions, but we're actually taking the description of the older brother later in the parable. I've heard pastors and preachers talk about, he was visiting prostitutes, he was doing drugs, he was cheering for the Dallas Cowboys, all the sinful things that you can ever do in an entire life, doing all of these things. And not once does Jesus actually describe that. The father in the story doesn't describe that. It's actually the, the older brother who despised his sibling, paints a picture and calls, basically calls him prodigal. Now we hear that word prodigal and the word prodigal itself, it is synonymous with words like wayward or I'll use a word that my, my, my dad would use uh, for years, rebellious. That was, that was a hot word there back in the 80s. Um, wayward, rebellious. How about this one? This is the old churchy word, backslidden. Y'all remember backslidden? That was a good one. I remember my youth pastor made up these t-shirts that had somebody sliding down a hill and it says, front sliding only. I'm like, front sliding only? He goes, yeah, no backsliding. I'm like, I'm not wearing that t-shirt. The word prodigal, if you were to Google it right now, I'm okay if you Google it. The word means to spend freely and recklessly, to be wastefully extravagant. Tim Keller describes it this way, a reckless spendthrift to spend until nothing is left. And so the prodigal is that, and he, he's a prodigal not because he's rebellious in the sense of sin, he's a prodigal only because he is spending freely and recklessly. He wastefully blows his, his inheritance. We don't even have a record that he sinned or that he was sinning, that he was wasting his, his stuff on drugs, prostitutes, um, whatever sin that you can think of. Um, he, we don't have any record. All we know is he was given money and he may have been spending money on good things, but what we, what we do know is he was wasting it and using it in a reckless way. And it's his brother's accusation that has painted the picture of him. Think about it. One person's accusation has carried a reputation around that individual. I wanna give someone a word this morning. Stop assessing your value based upon somebody's earthly appraisal. 
Stop assessing your value. You may feel like the younger one this morning where you have looked at your value, your value, your, your, your assessment based upon somebody else's assessment over your life. You are not who people say you are. You are who God says you are. So live in the identity of who Jesus has spoken, what Jesus has spoken over you. Where some people have said lost, Jesus calls you found. People say that you're broken. He says, I'm gonna heal you. Where people may say you're nothing but chaos. God can speak peace in your life. We live by his authority and not somebody else's. But we wander through people's assessment and we lose ourselves based off of what people have said about us. So let's look at these characters. Let's break this down here. First, we have the younger. We have the younger son. Might even call him the younger brother. And the younger brother, like we said before, connects us to the sinners and tax collectors, the sinners and the tax collectors, the, the outsiders, the people looking from the outside. Now, in this culture, this boy would have been ostracized, he would have been shunned. He would have been an outcast in his community and no longer welcome back in the community. Why? Because he looked at his father and simply said, I want my inheritance. And what that translated to in that day is, you are better off dead to me. So therefore give me what I am owed after you have passed. And that right there would have spoken to the community. He dishonored his father. He distanced himself from his family and he disconnected himself from his community. He was the outsider of outsiders. And yet Jesus is telling this story because he's trying to lump in the audience and let them know that, listen, in this group right here, we've got insiders and we've got outsiders and we've got outsiders here. And these outsiders that Jesus was talking with, the ones that he was sitting with, are the ones that he constantly tried to connect to, but they were the same ones that the Pharisees and the religious were eager to distance themselves from. And Jesus is trying to change a paradigm saying, listen, holiness doesn't, doesn't come from keeping yourself distance. Holiness comes from the Lord. And some of us, all we're trying to do is just try not to sin. Maybe I can just try not to sin. Listen, I'm not here to get you to stop sinning, and I'm just gonna have a request. Stop sinning. But the goal isn't to get you to stop sinning. The goal is to get you to the heart of God and let God get a hold of your heart. I'm getting ahead of myself here. And this young man says, look at verse 12. He says, give me, give me the shared property that's coming to me. Look at those two key words, give me. Give me what I think. Give me what I feel. Give me what I'm owed. Give it to me now. And the father, the father is, is I think, more gracious than I am. Because I think I would say, you don't own anything. <laughs> I'm going to take what's mine. I paid for it all, you could just walk out the door. But the father literally gives him everything. I, one commentator said that a father started liquidating his assets in order to bless both of his sons, which meant that if he had to sell it quickly, he didn't actually get full value for what he got. But if because his sons asked, he was willing to let his son have a free will. I do believe that God gives us a free will. God blesses us with a free will. And the way that we can bless God is, for, is how we use that free will. Verse 14 it says this, and when he had spent everything, 
A severe famine rose in the country, and, began, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed by the pods and the, that the pigs ate, and no one gave him everything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you before heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In the coming weeks, we're going to break that down a little bit more. But look at this, the idea of famine, the idea of recognizing that when, you're, when you're, you have resource within your life, that resource was actually meant to run dry because those resources were never meant to be the sustenance of, of your life. Jesus was meant to be the sustenance of your life. And at some point, we're going to come to the end of our resource. We're going to come to the end of what we can do. But waiting at the end of what we can do is Jesus standing there waiting for us. He is waiting for us to come home. And we see the Father. We see the Father ready for the Son to come home. But before the Son had to come home, he had to come to the end of himself. I don't know if you've ever come to the end of yourself. I think, I feel like I've been there a few times in my life. But some of us, we, we want God to help us before we come to the end of ourselves, not to take us into where he wants us to go. It's just to aid us in the lifestyle that we've already been living. But I think that God wants to help us to get to the end of ourselves so that we can begin the new life in him that he's always wanted for us. He came to his, his, his senses. And what I love about the prodigal son, what I love about this younger man is this prodigal, he began to remember back in his father's house. I need some of you here today that maybe you are wandering from God, I need you to go back and remember what you learned about God. And maybe you didn't have a lot of teaching about God, but maybe you can go back to a simple verse, John 3, 16, that for God so loved the world. Not, he didn't hate the world and sent his son to wreak vengeance. He loved the world to send his son so that you can believe in him and not perish. He remembered what it was in his father's house. He remembered the message of his father's house and he began to turn back. Verse 20, oh, this is so good. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was, look at those words, a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran, embraced him, and he kissed him. And he said, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and, and put shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. I mean, I need, I need you to wrap your head around this father, since I can imagine, ever since his son left with his inheritance, I can imagine his father grabbing a cup of coffee every single morning and stepping out upon that porch, looking in the distance, looking in the distance. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's this moment. I can imagine him not eating lunch in the house, but every single day sitting on the porch, eating his lunch on his lap and looking in the distance. Why? This is the picture of the father. 
the Father who doesn't ignore you, the Father who is always looking towards you. He wants you to come home. See, the Father's love never stopped from the younger son. The son, younger son was wasting his life away. And you may be here today or you're watching a line and you feel like you've wasted your life. I want you to know something. You can waste your life and you'll never waste the love of God over your life. God's love is pointed towards you. It is leaning towards you. And he is watching for you to come home. And you may feel like an outsider. You may feel like an outcast. But God doesn't care the label that you wear. He cares about who you are. And is waiting for you to come home. This is the Father. And he has room for all sorts of outsiders. Have you ever felt like an outsider to God? I've felt like an outsider to church. I felt like an outsider to Christians. I felt like an outsider with my own feelings and my own struggles. I remember those days. Do you remember the days where you felt like an outsider? Some of y'all here, you just still feel like an outsider. Listen, I, I could care less whether you feel like an outsider to people. I just want you to know that if you feel that way with the Lord, I want you to see God in a new way today. He is standing there looking and not just looking. If you look at the scripture, the father ran toward the son. Culturally, this is what's cool. In that culture, people of prominence and wealth and substance, which we kind of get an idea that this guy had servants, this guy had land, this guy had enough to split inheritance between two sons. People like this, they hired people to run for them. Have any of, any of you that have taken up jogging ever wanted to hire somebody to run for you? This man picked up his tunic and he didn't care. I mean, you gotta imagine this man of substance. He didn't care if the servants saw him running. He didn't care if the older son was watching. He didn't care what the neighbors thought. He didn't care. This, when you think of the word prodigal, the prodigal means wasteful. It means reckless. It means you abandon all senses. You wanna know what prodigal looks like? It looks like a father that just doesn't care. I see my son, and I don't care if people think I'm reckless. I don't care what people think what he did was wrong. What I do care is he is my son. If you want to talk about prodigal, let's talk about the father today. The, prod the, the prodigal father that wrapped his arms around, and I bet you people looked at him and said, because we know the older brother said, you're wasting your mercy on him. You're wasting forgiveness. You're wasting grace all over him. Have you ever had people say that of other people out in the world? They don't deserve grace. Let me tell you this. There's nobody in the room where, where, your gra where grace is not deserved. We don't really deserve grace in the room here. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. None of us deserve it, but yet we've got a God that runs toward us that gives us grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. We've got what Tim Keller calls a prodigal God who recklessly loves us when we don't deserve love in the moment. He hugs us when we don't feel huggable. He adores us when we don't feel like we can be loved whatsoever. We've got that type of loving father. I wrote this down this week. The father loves us without condition. He forgives us to completion. He embraces us with affection and he brings our hearts into transformation. And he takes his son and he does peculiar things. He immediately clothes him, which is giving back his dignity. He wants to give the son back his dignity. 
He doesn't say, I want, you to pr- I want to parade you in front of the family so that the family can look at how far you've fallen. Man, God help us for making people parade themselves in their sin. I want them to feel bad in their sin. You know what? We don't need you to help us feel bad in our sin. The Holy Spirit does a great job of helping us with our sin. Some of us just want people to suffer a little bit longer. We don't need people to suffer. Jesus took our suffering for us. So the the son gets his dignity. He gets the cloth, the the robe around his shoulders. He puts sandals on his feet. You know what that meant? The servants of the house, that's, that's what the son wanted to be. I just want to be a servant. Servants didn't have shoes. And he immediately put shoes on his feet and says, I'm, not, I'm going to do more than just put you into a place of a servant. I'm going to reestablish you as a son. And then puts a ring on his finger, which was identity. It gave him the ability to go and to purchase goods and to act on behalf of the family. He restores a dignity and restores identity. The father totally restored the son. You see, when you have approval from the Father, you don't have to search for approval from other people. When you get the approval of the Father, you don't have to have that inner appro- approval from, some, from other people. I watch people all the time. I counsel with them all the time. We are searching for the approval of individuals, of friendships, relationships. Some of you are longing for approval from parents who have passed away. And I'm not here to trample on your hurt or trample on your pain. But we have been chasing for the approval of human beings for so many years of our lives. Spending our feet, our feet's energy chasing after approval. When you all you have to do is to stop and realize that the only approval you ever need is the approval of a heavenly father that just longing for a prodigal to run into his arms. Verse 25. How many of you know when you're having a good time there's always somebody to rain on your parade? Now the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. How do you hear dancing? What type of dancing is going on that you hear dancing? Got mosh pits going on here. Verse 26, and he called one of the servants and asked, what are these things meant? And he said to them, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received them back safe and sound. You want a good argument for carnivore living right there, man. Kill the fatted calf, get the barbecue going. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look these many years, I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Look at the accusation. He, he has not been on Facebook to see what his brother was up to. Didn't read his brother's blog to see what was going on. Nobody texts him and say, you'll never guess what your brother bought with all that money. He makes accusations, and you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And listen, he says, all that I have is yours. Do you remember when he split the inheritance? He didn't just give the younger son his part of the inheritance, because according to the culture, the older child got twice the amount. Anybody think that we should reinstall that right there in today's? I'm the oldest child in the family. I'm all about voting that through Congress. Must happen. So two children, one guy got one-third, the other guy got two-thirds. And this older brother is hacked off because you realize that what they're using to throw this party Whose money are they actually spending? His. Son, 
You're always with me and all I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother is, was dead and he's alive, lost and now he's found. Look at this, the older brother in the story, he stayed in the boundaries. He played in the boundaries. He stayed in church. These were the Pharisees. Remember verse two, there were Pharisees and scribes or Pharisees and teachers of the law. It depends on your translation. These were the ones that Jesus was talking about. He's like, these are the insiders, the, the older brothers. And I don't know about you, I'm glad that, that the father met the younger son when he came home. Can you imagine if it was the older brother that met him? You know, I, I think I've been in a few churches that were churches of older brothers. I'm like, man, I don't know if I'd be afraid to show up if I was an outsider and have younger, have older brothers meet me. We need to be a church, not of the older brother. We need to be a church of the father that has arms open for the younger and the older brother, the insides and the insiders and the outsiders, longing to bring them in. And notice this, he didn't care for the younger brother, he cared for what was his. Now this is something that the Bible wouldn't tell you just because we don't have every detail of the culture, but the more that you study, you begin to realize that in this setting, that when there was a little bit of a catastrophe that involved the father, it is, it is up to the older brother to be the mediator. What's the catastrophe? Look at verse 12. The younger son says, give me my inheritance early. I want you dead. I would think that's a time to call in the older son to mediate. So when you look at the first part of the story, I need you to listen to the silence of the older brother because the older brother didn't care about the younger brother. All he cared about what was his. And he didn't care about anything until it cost him something. Isn't that the religious spirit that Jesus is, is dealing with? That we're fine with church as normal unless something changes and it costs me something. It costs me the songs that I wanna sing or the styles that I want or, or what things look like or what things feel like. We have this religious spirit that just wants to control and go after what's ours. And look at his accusation to, you, to his father. He didn't say, my brother came back. He says, your son did this stuff. And then you never... You did the, the, the fatted calf rib. You never gave me a goat. You never gave me something to celebrate. You are giving him that which is mine. We've got this amazing contrast, the younger and the older. And I'm not talking, this is not a generational thing. This is a outsider, insider. The, in, the, the outsider had the free spirit. The insider, practically grounded. The outsider, what I feel is truth. The insider, what I see is truth. The outsider, the outsider driven by opportunities, the insider driven by accomplishment. And listen, ideas of feelings, free spirit, being grounded, seeing truth, understanding, these are not necessarily bad things. The problem with the older and the younger son was not their personality styles. The problem was they were disconnected from the father. That was the issue at hand. And this is how we know we're lost is when we are wrapped up in everything in life without the Father being the center of who we are. We were meant to find out who we are in God and begin to discover everything else after that. I've done these, these random studies over the past, uh, man, I say over the past six months or so, just going back and forth out of Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And there's something that I've come to understand is there are very good things in life, things like resource or substance, 
popularity, property. I said popularity, I'm looking at the word property. I can't read my own notes. Resource, property, responsibilities, sexuality. Like all of these things are very good. But the problem is, is in our culture, those are the four things that drive identities. Resource, how much we have drives who we are. How much we own, our property, drives who we are. The responsibilities, titles, drives who we are. Our sexuality drives who we are. And if you really study the, the foundation of humanity, when God created man, God created us and we found our oneness in God. Man and woman together, we reflect in and of ourselves who God is. We were meant to know who we were in God. And out of that identity, we begin to discover resource, property, responsibilities, and sexuality. And for some reason, we've gotten the cart before the horse. And no wonder why we've had so much dysfunction and disconnection from the Father is because we're trying to discover all those things and then get connected to God. But what if we came back to the beginning and we just got ourselves reconnected with the Father and begin to discover His heart for our resources, our property, our responsibility, and our sexuality? What if we got back to the beginning and we got to the place where we came into the Father and from there we get to know how to handle our resource. We get to know how to handle our sexuality. We know how to handle the properties and the things in our life. This is how God has designed it. But we have become wayward. We have we've become prodigal as we waste our time diving into these things and not going back and going to the place where we simply come home. You see, when issues drive our identity, we starve for acceptance. But when we live from acceptance, our issues derive from our identity in Jesus. I wanna say that again. When our issues, are like our resource, properties, responsibility, sexuality, when issues drive our identity, we starve for acceptance. But when we live from acceptance, our issues derive from our identity in Jesus. Why did these sons make the demands from the father that they did? Why? Because their identity wasn't with the father. Their identity was with their own issues. They were disconnected from the father. Worship band, I'm gonna need you to join me so I can shut up here. The issues at hand were reconnection to the father. You see, I think if we are to truly understand the parable of the prodigal, and I think that's the best way to describe it. You can either call it the parable of the two lost sons. That's a good way to describe it. Or we can just call it the parable of the prodigal. Because we've got two sons that are wasting their life. Lavishly spending their life on things that don't really matter. One lavishly spent it on things and wasted it all. And the other one was lavishly spending it on work and his own identity and his own self-righteousness and his own popularity and making sure that everything just came and belonged back to him. Wasting opportunities to be merciful, wasting opportunities to be gracious. And the Father, Father calls him all back. You see, the parable of the prodigal son reminds me this, that there are lost people who have never been to church and there are lost people who attend a church every single week. I felt the need to emphasize that because I believe that there are some of us here today, we don't feel lost because we've always come to church. We grew up in the church and we've always come to church, but I'm gonna tell you this, that just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christ follower as much as living in a, in a garage makes you a car. There are lost people living on the outside, there are lost people on the inside, so whether you're inside or outside, or I don't care what it is, you can still be lost. 
And when Jesus was talking to this crowd, verses one and two, he was talking to a group that was just simply lost. What made them lost? What made them lost wasn't necessarily their actions. What made them lost is they were disconnected from the Father. And yes, I would love to see their actions corrected. People, stop sinning. (laughs) Please stop sinning. Your life will be much better. But Jesus didn't come to correct actions. He came to correct hearts and to straighten the hearts out and restore the hearts back to God. And as I said before, I think both sons were prodigal, but I really look at the father as the most prodigal out of all three. Why? Because of his lavish spending of grace and mercy. Grace is getting what we don't deserve and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And it brings us back to this place of the father. He's come for you. He's come for me. Last night, I did something that I don't, I can't remember the last time I've even done it. I voluntarily watched a soccer match. Two types of people in the world, football and soccer. It's real football. Be quiet. This this is football. And so I'm watching and, and so, I asked my, my soon-to-be son-in-law, I love saying that, um, asked my, my, my daughter's fiance, I said, you know, so what's the significance, significance of the game? He says, well, it's Argentina versus Brazil. This is the championship. And Lionel Messi is one of the best players, if not the best player on the planet, one of the best soccer players of all time. And he's playing for Argentina. And this is his last chance before retiring from Argentina to actually win it. You see, Argentina has not won that championship since 1993. It's 28 years. And this is his last chance. And he says, says, how can I make this so you can understand how bad Argentina botches this up every year? He goes, Argentina's like the Detroit Lions. So my daughter's single now. No wedding left, so my fall opened up. He says, they always, they always fall short. And so I decided, I watched almost the entirety of the thing. And Argentina's up one nothing. And there's a lot of close call, close call, close call. And when the last whistle blew, I watched this team. They should have celebrated as a team immediately. You know what they did? They ran toward one person. A captain who had been playing for his country since the age of 17 and has never been able to lead them toward a championship. And they ran toward the one, they began to lift him up in the air, they're surrounding him. Why people dogpile somebody at the end of a game, I do not know, that's how you get hurt. But they begin to surround him and they begin to celebrate the one. They ran toward him because they have fallen short so many times, but this seemed to be the last chance, the last opportunity. And now he gets to go out like a champion. And all of a sudden I begin to think about the message today. I begin to think about how the father looks toward you and he's looking for you, ready to have you just show up. Just turn your life to him. And what you're gonna discover is he's running toward you. You're ready to embrace you, ready to hold you, ready to lift you up and to say, this is why I showed up. Jesus showed up not to condemn you. He showed up to redeem you and to celebrate you and to give you the life that you need. You're like, Pastor Dave, hold up. I'm not that lost. What I want you to get a hold of is this. You're either lost or you're found. Well, I'm not that lost, y'all lost. You're either lost or found. 
There's no in between. There's no kind of. And if you're found, my hope in this series is this, is you will get a heart for the lost. Is that you will never look at a crowd and turn your eyes and turn your head and say, oh, look at them. I'm so glad I'm not like them. My hope is this, as they would get the heart of Jesus, you would pull up a chair and say, how can I be your friend? How can I love you more? How can I help you? Because we have a world that's full of prodigals, but thankfully we've got a prodigal God that wants to lavish his mercy and his grace on your life. We're about ready to go into a song, and I'm gonna, I wanted the worship team to sing the words to champion all over. I want you to get a hold of this. These are the lyrics. This is so, I didn't realize everything is gonna be down, so this is really uh, providential here. The words, I've tried so hard to see it. It took me so long to believe it, that you would choose somebody like me to carry your victory. Perfection could never earn it. You give what we don't deserve and you take all my broken things and you raise them to glory. For you are my champion and giants fall when you stand undefeated every battle you've won. For I am who you say I am. And you crown me with confidence for I am seated in the heavenly place undefeated for the, for the one who conquered it all. And today, with, can we just do this in the moment? We just bow our heads in the house. I, I don't want to wait till the end of the song to do this. Could you just, we bow our heads in the place. We were doing this to get privacy. If you're here today and maybe you are lost, you would just admit, Pastor, I am lost. I'm not kind of lost. I am lost. I'm not kind of broken. I am broken. And I don't care how long you've attended church. I don't care how long that you've come to this church, gone to any church, you were raised in church. I don't care about your church pedigree. I could give a care about that. What I care is about the condition of your heart in this moment. And if you're here today and you feel like that younger son, and you're wondering, would the father take me back? I want you to see, Get the, I wish I had the image of last night, them running toward one player, line, running toward Lionel Messi, running toward him to celebrate. I wish you could see the Father running towards you. Maybe you're here today and you're ready to make a decision to follow Jesus. You're done being prodigal. You're done wandering. You're done being lost. That's you today. And you're ready to make a decision. I've had heads bowed to give you privacy. So it's just you and Jesus right now. If you're ready to return home, and to give your life to Jesus, I just want you to slip up your hand. I wanna know who I can pray for today. I just wanna give a few moments. Thank you over here. Thank you over here. Thank you. Thank you Find my far right. Just a few more seconds here. I got four people giving their lives to Jesus. Anybody else? Thank you over here, buddy. I see that. Is anybody else? A few more seconds. If you lift up your hand, this is what I want you to do. I want you to begin to just pray. Pastor, what do I even say? This is what I want you to say, Jesus. I turn back toward you today. I turn towards you today. And Lord, I welcome your arms around me. I give you my broken life. I give you my sin. I give you my, the wastefulness that I've been living. And Lord, I accept your grace and your mercy today. I accept your love today. Accept everything you have to offer today 
and I am not who I was when I walked in this place. I'm yours. I'm yours. So Lord, I pray for these five individuals. I ask that you would help them right now to Lord lean into your love and your care, to lean into your grace today. Lord, you are, they are a new creature, the scripture says. The old is past, the new has come. And today we come before you ready to celebrate that you are our champion. You're their champion. So God, help us today and help, help us to help them as they endeavor.